Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with ACE Cultural Tools. It's Violet here. This week we're going to Norwich to meet two of the most astonishing women in medieval England. Manuscripts are one of the most tangible sources of evidence we have about the distant past and our guest this week has dedicated her professional life to studying them and persuading them to give up their secrets. In her spellbinding book, Hidden Hands, The Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers, Mary Wellesley reveals traces left by the people who made and owned these vital artefacts. As she explains, manuscripts are often the only connection we have with these people in the past who would otherwise remain completely anonymous and unknown. They give us insights into the lives of figures, women, people of colour, poor scribes, who rarely appear in mainstream histories. Many of these manuscripts have survived great peril to be with us today, thrown out of windows to escape fire, buried for centuries in coffins, or lost and neglected in dusty attics. In many cases, it is a miracle that they have been preserved, and of course, they are only a small percentage of the total. Thousands perished without trace. On our journey this week, Mary takes us back to the early 15th century, a period of unease in religion when reformist ideas were circulating and the church reacted violently against anything that appeared to challenge its orthodoxy. Mary Wellesley is a research affiliate at the British Library and Medieval Language and Literature course tutor for the library's adult learning programme. She's a regular contributor to the London Review of Books and the Times Literary Supplement, amongst others. Hidden Hands is her first book. Welcome to Travel Through Time, Mary. We are in for a real treat this week. Um, I've been very much looking forward to our conversation because I really, really enjoyed your book. It's absolutely fascinating. And um, before we talk about it, uh, I wanted to ask you a bit about your background because you're not just a normal run-of-the-mill historian like we normally interview on this podcast so can you tell us uh, about you know your job and how how you got there and what you do well principally I'm a writer but I also teach courses at the British Library as part of the adult learning program on medieval language and literature so I teach Old English and Middle English which are two different forms of English that survived that were spoken in the medieval period Old English from the time roughly before the Norman Conquest and Middle English from roughly the time after the Norman Conquest. Um, I also teach courses on literature from from the medieval period in England specifically. But really, I'm I suppose I'm not a sort of strict historian in the way that many of your guests probably are. I'm I'm more of a literary historian. I wrote my PhD about 15th century manuscript culture and my real obsession is manuscripts. And so you teach people basically how to read manuscripts because of course if 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 you go to the library and you take take out a 13th century manuscript for example it's not going to be written in um the type of english that you or i would recognize or you would recognize but i wouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, so I think this is one of the things that is a real sort of shame about manuscripts, that they're very intellectually inaccessible to people. And they're often actually quite physically inaccessible because they're held in research libraries and they're reserved really only for scholars. And if you see a manuscript in a gallery setting, you only see one opening of a manuscript, which is a bit like deciding to look at an old master painting and say, oh, I'm just going to look at this small credit card sized area in the bottom left hand corner. You know, it doesn't give you a sense of the richness and diversity of the artifact in front of you. Encountering manuscripts as a general reader is difficult, not only because the language is often unintelligible, but also the scripts in which that language is written is very, very hard to decipher unless you've got quite a lot of training. I mean, it took me years of doctoral research to get kind of confident even with reading middle english scripts yeah i mean once you've got it you've got it but it's it is hard 
Um, well, I hope that later on you're going to read a bit of Middle English for us because it's so beautiful. O on that subject, can you describe, because in the book you, you describe in this really evocative way what it is like going into one of those special collections reading rooms and being handed the manuscript. And then, so can you just, just describe that for, for, for us so that we can all imagine? Yeah, sure. I always say to people, a manuscript is an encounter. When you're sitting in the silence of a special collections reading room and, and turning the pages of a medieval manuscript, what you're having is these tangible, smellable, visual encounters with the past. And more importantly, you're having an encounter with the people that made the artifact in front of you. And the important point about manuscripts is that the creation of them was a collaborative exercise. There were so many people involved in the production of a manuscript from the people that prepared the uh, skin of the domestic animal, like a, a sheep or a goat, to create the parchment on which the text was written, to the binders, to the scribes, to the artists. And then there were a whole load of other people that left their mark on the manuscript often. So we have readers and annotators and owners. And so a manuscript is this amazing collection of human stories and there's something so magical about, uh, in the book I talk about the terminology of the hand, because when we talk about medieval manuscripts, we talk about the handwriting as the hand. So we would say, this manuscript is written in a 13th century hand. And there's something about that terminology to me that conveys a lot of the magic of the manuscript. You know, this idea that the hands might reach out to touch us. And manuscripts offer us often this only connection we have with these people in the past who would otherwise remain completely anonymous and unknown whole lives now long receded yeah and the reason I think that's very important is that the people that made manuscripts are not the kinds of people that we traditionally write about in our histories you know of course there were famous figures who were involved in the production of manuscripts but the vast majority of them were made by anonymous artisans and artists and these are people of a lower social status or women and so when we look at the manuscripts we have this precious encounter with these people who otherwise might be totally forgotten and that is very much what your book is about. So can you just briefly tell us some of the things that you decided to write about and why? Yeah, so the, the book is really a focus on the people who made manuscripts as well as the people who owned them. And it's the stories of the manuscripts themselves, but mainly the people. And so I have some chapters on scribes and chapters on artists and patrons and also some stories about how manuscripts nearly didn't survive and because I want to underline how precious the manuscripts that do survive are you know such a large number of manuscripts have been lost it's very hard to estimate what proportion of all the manuscripts ever made do survive but it's really really small mm. and um, in the book you uncover we're, we're going to be talking about two extraordinary women um, in more detail later but you do also uncover some really fascinating and and um, important stories and images so there's one particular image of a man of color in the doomsday book can you talk a little bit about that because it, it's very much I mean your book's called hidden hands and you are in many ways revealing these sort of hidden histories aren't you yes and that particular image it's it's in a manuscript of what's called the doomsday abbreviatio which is a sort of continuation of the doomsday book um, and it's very, very hard to know how to interpret the image, whether it depicts a real person or whether it's an imagined idea. But there are some details of that particular image that suggest to me that perhaps uh, they were possibly copied from life. So the man is, he's a kind of marginal detail and he's hanging from an enlarged initial letter, which is a, a common place where you would find decoration in a manuscript. And he's wearing a short tunic, which indicates that he's a servant or possibly a slave. And the details are really quite beautifully realized, which makes it seem that this is a, a more lifelike depiction of a person of color than some of the images that we find, which seem to be weird imaginations that that perhaps depict more of an othering 
yeah. than this particular image. But it's one of those great mysteries. We know so little about it. But I, it's one of those things that I love about manuscript as these brief moments, these flashes um, from history. You know, manuscripts are these kind of portals that take us back in time appropriately for this podcast. And that's the joy of that image. And the images on them, I mean, some of them are very, as you say, fantastical. And it's it's almost as if the uh, illuminators have just let their imagination run wild. Um, can you just talk a bit about illumination? Because it's such a an important feature of manuscripts. And it's also um, something that with printed books it just changed dramatically didn't it the the whole image the way images were uh, included yes absolutely I think that's one of the things that I love the most about manuscripts you know the modern printed text is this bland lifeless thing whereas the manuscript page is this wonderfully rich artifact covered often with these beautiful illuminations and I talk about a manuscript in the book called the Sherburn Missal, which is this extraordinary manuscript made for Sherburn Abbey. And it's it's a, a work of very careful, precise, ordered decoration, incredibly detailed, probably took years to produce, in which the illustration and the decoration seems to fit with the, the sacred words that it surrounds. But I also talk about this fantastic manuscript called the Luttrell Psalter, which was made in Lincolnshire around 1300. And it's a copy of the Psalms. And we might imagine as modern readers that a copy of the Psalms would have this sober, proper religious decoration at its edges. And indeed, there is some decoration like that in the manuscript. But a large part of the manuscript has these wild anarchic images at its edges. You know, there are people doing these mad fantastical things. There are strange beasts who have, you know, the head of one animal and the feet of another. Bizarre carnivalesque scenes like a, a monkey riding a goat um, out hawking with an owl. And there's something so joyous about this kind of topsy-turvy anarchic world at the edges of the sacred text. And it just reminds us that medieval people saw the world in such a different way from us. It defies so many of our expectations about what, what a copy of the Psalms should look like. Well, and I guess it's also an insight into you know the medieval imagination which is a a very difficult thing to to get to get to and that that's one of the the things that comes across so powerfully in your book is that these these little tiny it's almost like little tiny windows right back into parts of the past that we just normally have no access to at all and on that so when when you were talking about manuscripts earlier and you were saying how you know unfortunately and and you know, probably also for quite good reason. They're quite protected items. They're quite difficult to access. But this that has changed dramatically in the last two decades because many of them have been digitised. And you write this brilliant um, thing in the beginning of your book where you say that nowadays you can sit in your pyjamas at home on your laptop uh, looking at, you know, I mean, a huge array of manuscripts. So can you just talk a bit about that? Because that has democratised manuscripts in in a in a really dramatic way hasn't it yeah it's it's the most incredible thing i mean it made the completion of this book possible during lockdown when all of the libraries were closed and i was getting ready to submit my manuscript and that would have been completely impossible 10 years ago yes it's completely democratized access to manuscripts the book is in some ways um, a hymn to the joys of digitization because throughout i try and encourage people to go and google this stuff and, and find these images because they're all available online i talk mainly about british library manuscripts because i worked in the department of manuscripts there for several years so my main focus is british library manuscripts but um, I think almost all the manuscripts I talk about are digitised. And it's it's the most extraordinary thing, digitisation, because, you know, if you take a manuscript like, for example, the Beowulf manuscript, Beowulf is this kind of great epic of Anglo-Saxon literature and a hugely important text in the history of English literature. It's very, very fragile. It was in a fire in 1731 and the edges of its folios have now begun to crumble. And so to issue the manuscript to readers is basically very dangerous for the manuscript. It, it would be a, an awful thing to do. So you have to have a really, really compelling scholarly reason to have a look at it physically in the flesh. But 
as I said, you can sit at home in your pyjamas and you can zoom in on the letters in the Beowulf manuscript in a level of magnification that you would never be able to achieve even if you were sitting in the reading room with a kind of massive magnifying glass. And that's incredible. And I think what's wonderful is that whether you are a you know a scholar who is interested in some kind of incredibly nerdy thing to do with the script or the the layout or whatever or you're just a person who wants to have a look at these beautiful marginal illuminations that it makes it possible for everybody to enjoy this very rich important part of our heritage well i'm i'm sure that we'll put some um links on your webpage so that people can uh, access them. And also hopefully we'll be able to have a couple of the images on there as well. Wonderful. Well, I think uh, now the time has come for me to ask the important question, which is, of course, Mary, if you could travel back in time to a particular year, which year would it be? Well, Violet, I'd like you to come with me to 1413. That would be an absolute pleasure. Um, Can you give us a bit of background on 1413? Just set the scene for us a little bit. Yeah, so this is the early 15th century. Um, If you like to think about English history in terms of kings and queens, um, Henry IV is on the throne. He's a Lancastrian king. He has deposed Richard II in 1399. Uh, It's a period of relative peace. There is um, the second peace treaty in the Hundred Years' War several decades earlier, so it's a time of relative peace. It's also a time of of prosperity, and we are going specifically to East Anglia, uh, which is a very wealthy region in this period. If you want to think in literary terms, um, if you've heard of any literature written in Middle English, it's most likely Geoffrey Chaucer. Geoffrey Chaucer died in about 1400, so this is a few decades or a decade or so after he died. And if you've heard of some other works in Middle English, it might perhaps be Sir Gawain and the Green Knight or William Langland's Piers Plowman. Those are also written at the end of the 14th century. So we're kind of in that period of of a great kind of richness of Middle English uh, literary activity. So we're going to East Anglia. And before we go to your first scene, can we just just talk about East Anglia? Why why was it so wealthy? But what, what was going on? Yeah, so so for our first scene, we're going to Norwich, uh, which at the time was the fifth largest city in England. Very, very wealthy region, East Anglia, as a result of the wool trade. So um, it was a very richly productive agricultural area. A lot of sheep were uh, farmed there and the wool was then uh, processed and sent to uh, the low countries. East Anglia's easy maritime connection with uh, the low countries meant that it was a very important trade hub okay and that's why if you're interested in the artifacts of the late medieval period east anglia is the most wonderful place to go because of all of the amazing churches um, that were built as a result of the prosperity of the wool trade and so religion is very much part of the fabric of life in this part of the world absolutely a place of great religious activity we're well before the reformation of course but Tell us about John Wycliffe and the reformist movements within the church at this point. John Wycliffe, who is a, a an Oxford theologian in the late 14th century, starts to write various different tracts that are arguing for quite major ecclesiastical reform. He wants a change to ecclesiastical hierarchy. He has some quite um, unusual views about the sacraments. And most importantly, he wants the scriptures to be available to people in the vernacular. And so a group of people around him at the end of the 14th century start to translate the Bible into the vernacular. And this is very important because it means that by the early 15th century, the church has been trying to crack down on this heresy, which is sometimes called lolody. But by the early 15th century, it's clear that they are not really managing to. And so it's becoming quite aggressive in its attempts to to stem the tide of heresy and, and people are burnt at the stake in this period. So it's a time of great uneasiness about the nature of vernacular writing about religion. Okay. And that's, so that's an important plot point. Yes, absolutely. And and also very interesting that, you know, th- these are sort of Reformation ideas a hundred years before the, the the Reformation. So I think now let's go to your first scene, um, which is, as you said, in Norwich. Can you take us to exactly where, where, we, where we're going to be? So we are going to a tiny little room, a cell, in fact, attached to a church in Norwich, a place called St. Julian's Church in Connorsford. This is in Norwich. It's in a 
busy urban location. We're not very far from the River Wensum. In this little tiny cell lives an anchoress. And an anchoress, that's the female form of the word anchorite. An anchorite or an anchoress is a person who permanently encloses themselves inside a cell to live a life of prayer and contemplation. And in this particular cell is a woman called, who we now know as Julian of Norwich. And at the time, in 1413, she's probably about 70. And she's most likely been enclosed in the cell for 40 years. In 1413, she is visited by this extraordinary character called Marjorie Kemp, who is a woman from King's Lynn in East Anglia who is a larger-than-life figure. She is the mother of 14 children. She's worked variously as a, a brewer and a horse mill operator. And after the very traumatic birth of her first child, she has visions of Jesus. And after that, then has continuous visions of Christ and various saints throughout her life. And in kind of midlife, she makes a decision to become what's called a vowess, so a person who takes unofficial religious vows without actually being attached to a religious institution. And so a sort of half nun. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But she's kind of out in the world and traveling around. And uh, we'll talk more about her travels in a moment. And she is clearly very concerned that the visions that she's experiencing may be the work of the devil. At several times in her life, she consults various theological authorities, spiritual advisors, and one of the people she's told to go and consult is this anchoress, Julian of Norwich. And can we just go back briefly to the whole idea of being an anchoress? Because this yes. was... I, I found this really mind-blowing in, in, in your book, this section, and I, I'm not sure if our listeners are aware of exactly what it involves, but can you just describe briefly, starting with the ceremony that mm -hmm. you have to undertake to become an anchoress? Yes. So let's start before the ceremony. So if you wanted to become an anchoress, you had to apply to your local bishop and you had to prove that you had the money to support yourself because you were kept alive by some servants who brought you food and took away waste. And you had to prove that you were of, you know, sound mind and the appropriate disposition to live this spiritual contemplative life. And that's important. and We'll get to it later. So if you've been granted permission by your local bishop to become enclosed, the ceremony of enclosure is a piece of macabre high drama. In many places, it's indistinguishable from a funeral service. So at the point of the enclosure, the recludendus, so the novice recluse, will process with the congregation out through the church and into the churchyard and then to the to the north often the north side of the church where a cell would have been built and the north side is chosen because it's the place where the the wind is the coldest and there's the least sunlight i mean it's a very austere place to be on entering the cell some liturgical directions say that the novice recluse will then climb inside a ready dug grave and lying there they're sprinkled with dust with with earth you know ashes to ashes dust to dust sprinkled with holy water and then various antiphons are said and the door of the cell is then bolted from the outside and they are never to come out archaeological evidence suggests that many anchorites and anchoresses were indeed, when they died, buried inside that grave that was dug for them at the point of their enclosure. So they lay inside their own grave in a very literal sense from the moment they entered the cell. And this was because it was understood that at the point of enclosure, the anchorite or anchoress was dead to the world. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? It's such a strange and it's just so hard to imagine living your life like that. Yeah, it's it's very strange and it was a life of unbelievable restriction, you know, no laughter, no touch, stipulations on what you can eat and what kind of clothing you can wear, a life of constant prayer. The kinds of activities that anchorites and anchoresses were allowed to do was also severely restricted. I think it's perhaps helpful to sort of go back and think about why people chose to do this so mm. to give a really rapid potted history but when christianity became the official religion of the roman empire it went from being this kind of fringe religion whose devotees could prove their their devotion to the faith 
by martyrdom. So if you were if you were a real devotee, you no longer had, as it were, the option of martyrdom. And so to prove your your devotion, you had to seek other kinds of sort of bodily mortification, a kind of, as it were, a living death to show how strong your faith was. And it's in that context that the monastic tradition emerges and you have these these figures, the so-called desert fathers and mothers like St. Anthony, who then retreat into the into the deserts in Egypt and uh, lived in isolated caves, sometimes in communities. So in a strange way, Julian of Norwich, many, many centuries later, was bringing something of the Egyptian desert to her tiny, cold, austere cell attached to St. Julian's Church in Norwich. Just extraordinary. And, and also strange because I don't know about other religions, but certainly um, ancient sort of so-called pagan religions, that, that kind of depri- deprivation and mortification wasn't really part of... It's, it's, it's interesting, I think, why Christianity sort of held that, that kind of mortification in such it's extraordinary and of course regard. the central image of christianity is this image of really brutal bodily mortification yeah suffering i suppose suffering in this world so that you then have a good time in the next world fascinating right so so marjorie comes to visit julian and do we know anything about their encounter is there any evidence for what what they talked about yes so we should really say how we know about these two figures in the first place. So Marjorie Kemp we know about because of this extraordinary text called The Book of Marjorie Kemp, which is the first piece of autobiographical writing in English. And it's written by Kemp. And the reason it's so important is that most often it's the voices of a kind of regal or ecclesiastical elite that come down to us from the Middle Ages. But Marjorie is an ordinary woman. I mean, she's she's from a prosperous urban mercantile family. Her father is the mayor of Kings Lynn. So she's not poor, but she's also an ordinary person. And the, I always say, you know, that the extraordinariness of the text lies in its ordinariness. And the reason that we so rarely hear from people like that is because people like that were more likely to be illiterate. And Kemp is no exception in this. She was illiterate. And so she had to dictate the text to what's called an amanuensis, so a scribe who heard her words and wrote them down. In fact, she made four different attempts using three different amanuenses, which I find very moving because it shows her incredible determination to get her story recorded. Kemp's book is a very important source because Julian of Norwich is uh, the author of the first work in English that we can be sure was authored by a woman. She's an incredibly important writer, a writer of great theological and rhetorical sophistication, who produces this extraordinary text that was loved and celebrated by T.S. Eliot and Yeats. But apart from Julian's text, we have very, very little evidence about her life. We have a handful of wills, that leave bequests to her. But beyond that, we basically know nothing. And so Marjorie's text, which describes this encounter between the two women, is really, really important because it's this little snapshot that gives us a sense of Julian as a person, which is just so magical. And isn't that extraordinary that these two women who happen to be the two sort of first writers in English met each other? And what, I mean, what are the chances of that? And then also the chances that and that's another amazing story, which I'm not even sure we're going to have time to tell, but how the book of Marjorie um, Kemp was discovered. But people will just have to buy it. <laughs> that yes, please do. So what does, <laughs> what does Marjorie say about Julian? So Marjorie describes how she spent uh, many days with Julian and she seeks her, her advice on whether the visions that she's been having are real or whether she's being tempted by the devil. And Julian offers this really lovely response. She says, you know, you, you must trust that what you're being told is, you've been told by God is very truthful, unless it's, you know, unless it's in some way harmful to Christians, in which case it probably is the devil. But she really reaffirms Marjorie's visions. And she, she it desc- the first thing that Marjorie says is that Julian gives thanks for the fact that Marjorie has been this kind of conduit for for Christ um, to offer his vision of the world through her. And there's a real kind of kindliness about Julian's response to Marjorie, which is very important because throughout her book, Marjorie describes being treated really terribly by the people who she meets. She's, She's clearly a wildly unconventional woman who 
really annoys people because she she wails and roars and weeps with loud devotion and she wears white which people find very troubling because it's a sort of sign of virginity even though she's you know a wife and a mother and she's 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 kind of putting on the outward display of religiosity without being kind of officially attached to a to an institution and this is kind of troubling to to um medieval people who were who were very concerned in the middle ages just as a side point there are this this thing called sumptuary legislation which says that people of a certain social class have to dress according to their social class so you know if you're a if you're a merchant you're not allowed to wear silks because that would make you look like an aristocrat so mm. that's just an example that shows you about how medieval people were very concerned about outward display and marjorie is just yeah. you know she's not fitting into the understood categories of how people should behave and we talked earlier about the wickliffeite heresy and this kind of major anxiety about about heretical religious discourse and the church in the 15th century had said that as a result of this heresy it was illegal to preach without a license and marjorie spends a lot of time doing what looks a bit like preaching which is pretty concerning mm. to the church would be very concerning to the church if she was a man but the fact that she's a woman and doing it is is really troubling and so what's really lovely about julian's response is that she she believes in marjorie in a way that many people don't and i think this is important because it touches on a kind of key part of julian's theology if you've ever heard uh, of anything that julian has written you might have heard of this famous line all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And I always think that line kind of encapsulates the sort of radical, yeah, really radical kind of hopefulness and optimism of her theology. You know, if you think about a lot of um, religious writing in this period, a lot of it is kind of doom and brimstone and terror, you're striking terror into the hearts of believers. There's a text written at the same time as Julian's text, which is also probably written by an anchoress called A Revelation of Purgatory. And it describes these people in purgatory who are boiled in barrels and having their lips cut off and hung from hooks and attacked by snakes. You know, it's horrible. And that's only purgatory. <laughs> you know, yeah, if that was yeah, purgatory, exactly. what was hell like? So one of the things that's so amazing about Julian is how how kind of loving her vision of the world is and that line all shall be well really kind of encapsulates it and I think we also see that in her response to Marjorie you know she she believes in her and she's if anything just thankful that Marjorie has is this kind of conduit for, for Christ's teaching and that must have been amazing for Marjorie also to receive that affirmation and, and positive response let's move on to our second scene now we're heading off with Marjorie on a frankly epic journey. I mean, it would be an epic journey today, but in those days, I can't imagine. Um, where are we going? <laughs> yeah, so at some point in late 1413, Marjorie sets off to Jerusalem, which would have taken her, it took her, in fact, several years to get to Jerusalem and back. So an extraordinary journey. And she was a woman traveling sometimes with people and sometimes on her own. It was a terrifying must have been a terrifying kind of ordeal for her and along the way she kind of meets up with various groups of travelers and <laughs> invariably she annoys them a lot and they do things like <laughs> steal her money and abandon her um, because she roars and weeps too loudly and sometimes they kind of allow her back into their their company again but they won't allow her to eat at the same table as them and um, so poor old Marjorie, she gets a bit of a rough time of it on her pilgrimage. Uh, do we have any idea um, how you know how she got there? What her route was? Presumably, she set off by boat from somewhere in East Anglia. Yes, she set off. I think she sets off from Great Yarmouth. She goes to the Low Countries. And does she? So does she travel um, by road rather than by sea for most of the journey? Or do we do we know what her itinerary was? Yeah, she goes a mixture of by road and by sea. She goes to the low countries then she makes her way to Rome she spends some time in Rome and then um this was quite a sort of established pilgrimage route yeah at the time that she gets to Jerusalem Jerusalem is under Mamluk control um but 
various order, religious orders, like for example, the Franciscans have quite established networks for bringing Christian pilgrims to the Holy Land and, and taking them to the sites of Christ's life, which she finds to be a very, very moving experience as she reports in the book. Yeah, so she writes about it in, in, in her book. And was she very unusual, do you think, to do that on her own as a woman? She certainly talks about encountering other women on the route, but I think she was probably quite unusual in, in the fact of her social class. So she talks about coming across um, aristocratic women, you know, who clearly had the resources to make this journey a lot more comfortable. Um, and... Yeah, so I think she she was quite unusual, it, it, as with many things with Marjorie. She, was, she wasn't afraid to do something unusual. Mm. And this wasn't the only big journey that she went on. I mean, she, she went to Norway as well, didn't she, later on? Yeah, so later on in her life, she went to Norway and on to Aachen. Um, yeah, she makes several, and she goes to Santiago de Compostela. I mean, she makes several of these huge journeys. Um, and she also travels all around England. Uh, she goes to York, Leicester, Beverly, Hull. She's an irrepressible figure. Yeah, and presumably that explains why she was so determined to get her story written down. Do you think we have um, time for you to just very quickly tell the story of the ping pong match? Yes, absolutely. So in, in 1934, a family called the Butler Bowden family were playing ping pong in their house in Derbyshire. And uh, one of the players trod on a ping pong ball. And so they went to a nearby cupboard to look for more ping pong balls. And on opening the cupboard, what was described as an undisciplined pile of bookish clutter fell out. And Colonel Butler Bowden was incensed and said, I'm going to put this whole bloody lot on the fire tomorrow morning. <sighs> and thankfully, somebody said, well, maybe, maybe we should just have a look and see if there's anything interesting in here. And one of the books had this rather unprepossessing kind of mouse-eaten cover. And the book turned out to be The Lost Book of Marjorie Kemp. Because until 1934, nobody knew about Kemp's text in its entirety. The only version of the text that survived were these heavily abbreviated printed extracts that were printed in about 1501. And what's important is that the printed extracts take out of Marjorie's text the moments when Christ speaks directly to her. And so Marjorie, who is this boisterous figure who, who loudly communicates her devotion and also the trials and tribulations of trying to live a good Christian life. You know, she talks about how she wants to have an affair and her sexual temptations and her sexual desire and all of these amazing, this very rich, amazing portrait, which is so human. All of that has been removed in this printed, edited text. And she just becomes this kind of silent, submissive, weeping woman who's a kind of conduit for, for Christ. And so it just really underlines the importance of manuscripts for connecting us to people's lives in the past, because without it, we would have a much poorer sense of Marjorie herself. There's nothing that quite brings the past to life like travelling to see where a momentous event took place, where an art movement sprang to life, a battle raged, or the first notes of a symphony sounded. If you're culturally curious and looking for a holiday with a difference, take a look at Ace Cultural Tours, who sponsored this episode of Travels Through Time. They've been taking tour groups globetrotting for over 60 years and their tours cover a range of interests and destinations with plenty on offer in the UK as well as further afield. All ACE tour groups are hosted by subject experts who are often able to provide exclusive access visits to private art collections, houses and gardens. Whether you want to feel the wind in your hair on the Roman frontier at Hadrian's Wall, follow in the footsteps of Picasso and Matisse around the Côte d'Azur, or contemplate hundreds of years of worship at Japan's oldest surviving temple, ACE are sure to have something for you. Find out more via their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or speak to their friendly team on 01223-841055. That's 01223-841055. Well, an amazing story. How lucky that he didn't put the whole lot on the fire before they'd had a look at what it was. <laughs> Let's move on to your third scene, and I believe we're going to be talking about Julian's revelations her her book yeah so i'm always worried when i talk about this that i i get into quite a lot of detail about texts and versions but 
the story I think is a is an important one. So in 1373, Julian, who at the time was 30 years old, lay on her deathbed. She believed she was going to die. And she'd been ill for several nights. And at a certain point, the priest is called to come and bring her the give her the last rites and he brings with him a crucifix which he holds in front of him to offer her comfort at this moment of of what she believes to be her death and she's dead to sensation from the waist down and her head has lulled to one side and all of the room goes dark and she has this vision of kind of hallucinogenic terror the room seems to be filled with fiends and the crucifix itself appears to kind of glow as if it was illuminated and at this point, she has this vision of blood running down from Christ's crown of thorns on the crucifix. And she has these, uh, what she terms, well, these important revelations at that moment. And she thereafter recovers and lives until well into her 70s, as we know from our first scene. So soon after these terrifying events in 1373, Julian composes what's called the short text of her revelations, which is just this very immediate account of the events of that night and what she saw. She most likely composed that text as part of her application for enclosure that we talked about earlier and probably sent it to her local bishop. And her application was then approved. And then inside her cell, living this austere enclosed life with very little sensory stimulation she meditated on the meaning of her visions on the events of that night for as she says over 20 years and she then produced what's called the long text and the long text represents julian's transition from from a mystic to a, a really sophisticated theologian and it's a work of extraordinary rhetorical flourish and beauty i mean the writing is just unparalleled so julian would be important just for the fact that she's the first the author of the first work in english that we know was written by a woman but it's it's a text of real quality aside from that and so what we have with julian are these two different versions of the text which show us her mind and her thinking in transition over several decades and so in in this moment in 1413 she's she's getting the long version copied has she would she have written that herself could um, she, was she literate we don't know we don't know okay so this is a this is a wonderful can of worms the sophistication of the text and the way that she has clearly edited it and the fact that she makes a reference in the text she says i have teaching as if it were the abc so she's referring to the alphabet in, a, in passing, in, in a place in her text, which suggests that she, she was literate, she understood the alphabet. And she does elsewhere say that she's a, a lewd creature that could know letter, which means, lewd means sort of humble in, in Middle English, and or unlearned. And so it's not quite clear what she means by that, whether she means she just didn't have Latin or whether it's this very characteristic rhetorical device called the humility topos that a lot of medieval authors use where they say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm unworthy. I'm, you know, I, I'm no good at, at this. And it's actually a way of advertising how brilliant they really are. Or it, perhaps it's a sort of recognition of the, the fact that she's a woman and that is comes with its own complexities. Imposter uh, syndrome. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So at this point in 1413, well, we don't know when the long text, it, she says it was about 20 years after. We don't know exactly what was happening in terms of the copying. In fact, if there were indeed other versions, because at the end of the long text, she says this wonderful thing that she, she basically says the book is unfinished. You know, you have this sense that she goes on thinking about the, those night, that night and those revelations. You know, it was her life's work. So we don't know if there were other versions. It's possible there were. But 1413 is important. And this is the other kind of scene I want to get to. The long text doesn't survive in any medieval manuscript. The earliest one is from about the early 16th century. And many of the copies of the long text were made by exiled Benedictine nuns on the continent, which I think is really wonderful, the idea that this very important work by an early female writer was preserved by the energies of female scribes. The short text does survive in one medieval manuscript, which is in the British Library. That manuscript was made in about the mid-15th century, so sometime after this moment in 1413. But the copy that it was made from, which is called the exemplar, was made in 1413, 
so we have that date in the manuscript although the other texts around it were clearly copied later so it looks like this is not the original 1413 text it's copied from a copy made in 1413 in 1413 it says and this this text was uh, written by julian of norwich and it says that she's still alive at this point and we know this is obviously corroborates with marjorie's visitor yeah and that's very unusual to have a date on a manuscript isn't it yeah it's pretty unusual so before we get to the end I do feel like we could carry on for a lot longer. I I want to ask you if you could just read a little extract of either of their books in the um in Middle English so that people can get uh, a sense because I I was um very lucky I I obviously I have a copy of your book but I also um got a copy on Audible and you read it and anyone who's thinking about buying it i urge you to buy the the physical book because of all the incredible illustrations but also to get it on audible because then you get the the what it would have sounded like you know for most of us i i, I have no idea what middle english would have sounded like and it is so beautiful so please can you read us a little bit so i'm now going to read this uh, passage from julian of norwich's text a very beautiful moment which is justly famous and i'll read it first and then i'll explain a little bit about what's going on i'll read first the middle english and then i'll read a translation also in this he shewed a little thing the quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand as may say med and it was ruined as a ball i locked thereupon with the eye of my understanding and thought what may this be and it was generally answered thus it is all that is made. I marvelled how it might lasten, for me thought it might suddenly have fallen to nought for little. And he was answered in me understanding, it lasteth, and ever shall, for God loveth it, and all thing hath the being be the love of God. That sounds lovely. <laughs> I love it. Also in this, he showed a little thing the size of a hazelnut in the palm of my hand, and it was round as a ball. I looked at it with my mind's eye and thought, what can this be? And the answer came to me, it is all that is made. I wondered at how it could last, for it was so small it might suddenly have disappeared. And the answer came to me, it lasts and ever shall because God loves it, and everything exists in the same way by God's love. Now this is a moment in which Julian has a vision of the universe, and the universe is as small as a hazelnut lying in the palm of her hand. And what's so lovely about this is it conveys a sense of her sense of God's omnipotence, that yeah, he, can, he can hold the, the whole universe in the palm of his hand, but also a key part of this is is a thing that we find elsewhere in Julian's text that she writes in this very clear way and she uses these images which are very easy for us to instantly understand. I mean, we can all visualize a hazelnut. And also the thing about a hazelnut is it's, you know, a hazelnut is an ordinary nut. And we know this because of the etymology of the word walnut. So walnut originally meant in, in a Germanic form of, of the language that predated Old English a foreign nut because the walnut was was the exotic southern nut of the southern european tribes the hazelnut was just the normal nut and this is something we find elsewhere in julian she makes reference to the droplets of blood that come from christ's crown of thorns as being like herring scales and she talks about the drips coming like like drips of rain coming through the eaves, uh, falling from the eaves of a building after a heavy shower of rain. I mean, these are very easy to understand images that, that convey the kind of clarity of, of her thought. Also in this image, I think we have this, she talks about how she sees something with her mind's eye and then she is answered in her understanding. So the different ways in which Julian experiences her visions and then how she tries to make sense of them afterwards. And I think that's one of the lovely things about her text that she often acknowledges the fact that, that language fails her and she, she tries to understand what's happened and to explain it to her reader, but, but often fails. And, you know, in some ways, I think of her as this kind of unofficial patron saint of writers because she recognises the difficulty of trying to marshal language up to, to convey what you mean. 
And then you have that wonderful moment at the end where she says, this book is is not yet performed, i.e. it's not yet finished. I think we all as writers feel that, that a work is never truly finished. Yeah, there's always bits that you can add and things you, you can make better. I just find it such a thrill to have this real glimpse into somebody's mind. It, it just feels so... And and of course, a woman, and you know, as you as as you've said, it's that's just so unusual for that period for us to have that. Uh, thank you for sharing that and for reading it so beautifully. Um, well, I think we've almost reached the end of our journey. Sadly, um, I'm just going to ask you the one final question that we ask all our guests, uh, which is, of course, if you could have picked something up as a memento um, on one of our in one of our three scenes that we've visited today, what would it be and why? Well, we don't know if this memento was actually there at one of the scenes, but as I said, there is no surviving medieval manuscript of Julian's long text, and I would really love to go back, whether it was 1413 or when it was, to the time that that text was being copied. The dream would be that I would have what's called the the so-called autograph, so Julian's own copy. I would love to see what changes she made. Clearly, in the, across those two versions of the text, we see a sophisticated mind at work, but I would love to have that additional insight, seeing her process of textual production, her process of composition, because she's clearly one of the most brilliant minds of her generation. And that manuscript would give us this unparalleled access to this woman who, other than those texts, we know very little about her. That's such a good choice. And then you could do an incredible sort of study of it. And that could be your yes. next your next book. <laughs> oh, I've so enjoyed talking to you today, Mary. Thank you very, very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. That was me, Violet Muller, speaking to Mary Wellesley the other day about her wonderful book, Hidden Hands, The Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers, which is on sale now. It tells fascinating stories about the creation and survival of these extraordinary artefacts and is full of stunning pictures. For more information, links to digitised versions of the manuscripts and images, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>